Hi, Zane Horowitz and the crew for the October 2008 Oregon Poison Center Toxicology Journal Club. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the side effects, uh, the myriad of side effects of all the different dopamine antagonists that are out there. We're going to start with a group of articles to sort of build upon one another, talking about chloroperazine. And for those of you who don't remember what that is, that's compazine. Um, so talk about a drug that sometimes is a favor of many people in the emergency room to talk about some of the side effects and ways to at least approach uh, diminishing those. We'll start out with um, Chris Burke, our visiting student. So this article is titled uh, Prochlorperazine Induces Akathisia in Emergency Patients. Um, it was a study uh, published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in October of 99, um, and it was done at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tokelma, Washington. Uh, the object- objective of this study was to determine the incidence and severity of one dose of IM compazine and how it induces akathisia at one hour after administration. And they also did a follow-up at 48 hours to check on delayed symptoms. Um, they, the authors list this study as a prospective controlled study, um, but it uh, sort of uh, looks to me to be more of a case control study. Uh, the method they used, uh, the two authors used a convenient sample of patients and these are patients seen by only these two investigators on their respective shifts between July and November of 1997. Uh, the inclusion criteria for the study were age between 16 and 65, and the indications were severe headache or nausea vomiting. Uh, the patients could also have no other meds in the first 60 minutes of their ED course. And then a control group of patients um, were just selected at random, or seemingly at random, um, who, were only, who could only receive uh, IV saline and antibiotics and no other medications. Uh, the exclusion criteria included um, any motor disorders like restless leg syndrome or Parkinson's, um, any medical condition where an anticholinergic meds were contraindicated, um, any recent medications with extrapyramidal side effects, anticholinergic, sedative, or antipsychotic properties, and no meds within three days, such as antiemetics, antihistamines, antipsychotics, uh, antispasmodics, beta blockers, or calcium channel blockers. And then no other meds within two weeks, which included antidepressants, lithium, barbiturates, benzos, um, any other sedative, hypnotics, opioids, or um, illicit drugs. And so how they assessed uh, the incidence of echothesia was a validated scale, um, which is uh, validated by one of their references. And so what they did is they looked at a baseline assessment um, of using the scale and then uh, 60 minutes after administering the medication. And in order to meet the criteria for development of acuthesia, they had to have one objective or one point change in the objective score and a two point change in the subjective score. And then they graded um, the incidence or the severity, excuse me, um, into mild, meat, uh, moderate and severe um, uh, akathisia. And then all patients who developed this um, would get IV Benadryl 50 milligrams, regardless of severity. And then, so their follow-up was interesting as well, because for the initial 60-minute um, uh, assessment, they only they did both a subjective and an objective component, but on the 48-hour follow-up after discharge, they only did a subjective rating scale. And this was done by, they sent the patients a postcard. And if that postcard wasn't returned in 10 days, they did a follow-up call and just asked them the questions. Um, but the follow-up was not attempted in the control subjects at all. Uh, 
the results, so they enrolled a total of 140 patients, uh, 100 in the composing group and 40 controls. Uh, as far as comparing the two groups at baseline, they say they're equal, but on table two, um, they have 40% women in the control group and 71% intervention group. The p-value on that is 0.29. Um, I'm not a statistical expert, but it just seemed to be off to me and wanted to see what the group thought about that. Yeah, I mean, everyone pretty much accepts p-value as 0 0.05 yeah. or greater yeah. as something that would be significant. Yeah, just the raw numbers seem to be a bit off. But anyways, mm -hmm. um, so they noted a uh, one-hour incidence of akathisia at 44%. Um, most of these were actually moderate on the table. And they broke this down on table, or figure two. So 14% of the patients uh, rated mild, 22% uh, moderate, and only 8% severe. Um, and then on the 40-hour follow-up, again, there was no formal diagnosis, at least on their rating, because of the subjective component, rating component only. Um, only 62 of the 94 patients were followed up. And only three of these actually developed any subjective symptoms. But interestingly, none of these three actually developed akathisia at one hour in the ED rating. Um, and so that's the crux of the results. Uh, the authors note some of the, their own limitations in, uh, in the discussion. Both of the investigators were, uh, were not blinded to the treatment. Um, and there wasn't a sort of a, a um, consistent enrollment in that. You know, the next 140 patients who came in with headache or nausea and vomiting, it was just sort of, it almost seemed like they picked um, these patients as they came in on their shifts. So there's no consistency in, into um, like a sort of a lineation of, of patients. Um, also, the chief complaint of the control subject was not headache or nausea and vomiting. So there are different groups of patients between the control um, and the intervention group, which is important because... Um, you know, if you have a headache or nausea and vomiting, you might sort of have some subjective uh, rating of these sort of symptoms of akathisia. And then they also noted um, there was an arbitrary, arbitrary selection of treatment threshold. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that means, and they didn't go into great detail in defining that. Um, and then also in their two groups, there's 100 patients in the composing group and 40, only 40 in the control. So there's not equal numbers, and obviously they weren't randomized. Um, to this. So that's, I mean, it, it's interesting because they, it seems like the good point of this, they have it actually defined scale of what defines akathisia and this, the rating scale has been validated before. Um, so I think that's good, but I think the methodology um, <coughs> is lacking in a few uh, areas that I've discussed. Yeah, I think I, basically just sorry, let's just says to create a baseline and the baseline is that 44% of people who get composing IM in the emergency room for typical reasons we use it, nausea, vomiting, headache, um, have an adverse side effect, which although somewhat diminish how much it affects them, some of the other articles we're going to hear from talk about how it can be quite profound. Um, they sort of, there was eight different scoring systems for neuroleptic-induced akathisia, and part of it, by, by choosing the scoring system they did, they sort of elevated this one obscure scoring system called the Prince Henry Hospital Rating Scale of Akathisia into now the used scoring system that pretty much all the other composing and akathisia articles, at least in emergency medicine, um, were uh, based on. Uh, so they just kind of picked one that made sense to use and 
basically you had to watch the patient for a minute to see if they were moving around and doing increased neuromuscular activity, and then asking a couple of pretty simple questions. So it certainly was one that was convenient to use, but I think remains relatively applicable um, to what we observe. And there's been other studies with other of the medicines that we use, and the numbers all come out of around the same percentage. It's not a, a rare event. It's a pretty predictable event that occurs in nearly half of these patients that receive uh, this medicine and some of the other neuroleptics. Um, and this is, again, this excludes acute dystonia, which is probably a little bit um, more unusual. But, um, again, I think all of us know taking care of acute dystonia, that's far more distressing. Akathisia, I think, is missed a lot of times, attributed to anxiety and psychosis and other things, but it's truly a chemical uh, imbalance of the dopamine system uh, in the brain. So what, yeah. uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about this is that it, it brought to light a lot. You know, clearly, this is a common thing, uh, but I would very much hesitate to use their number of 44 since they... Um, it was an unblinded study by two observers who thought up the study to begin with, so clearly they thought it existed, uh, and then they unblinded, and their endpoint was a subjective um, endpoint. So uh, although I, I think this was a good study in that it showed that this happens more often than, than, than we thought it did, and I think it made us start to realize that when someone has a migraine headache and you give and then they're standing at the door tapping their foot wanting to leave <clears throat> that you know you may have caused some akathisia and you know it's not um, that they're just anxious people but I would hesitate very much quoting 44% I think that that number is highly suspect uh, but clearly it's more common than the virtually 0% which is what I think most people thought before, <laughs> before the study came out well, I answer some of that to prospectively evaluate this. We've got Matt's going to talk about two different strategies and two different articles from two different places um, about what can we do to diminish that. Again, establishes another baseline in a placebo controlled trial. All right, so this is um, a randomized double blind placebo controlled trial titled Intravenous Administration of Prochlorperazine by 15 minute infusion versus 2 minute bolus does not affect the incidence of ecathesia, prospective randomized controlled trial. Basically, you read the title and you kind of got the upshot. Um, <laughs> there. Well, Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, uh, basically they thought, you know, there's um, reportedly a high incidence of ecathesia in people that get IV procorperazine, and they wanted to uh, think about a strategy of potentially reducing it. Their theory was that they, um, they could reduce the incidence of ecathesia in um, procolorperazine administration by giving it slowly over 15 minutes as opposed to the recommended two-minute bolus, which the manufacturer recommends. They, they conducted the study at Methodist Hospital. Um, they paid, enrolled patients 18 to 65 for headache, nausea, and vomiting. They excluded people that had had an antiemetic in the previous 12 hours or antihistamine in the previous 24 hours. They excluded people with other meds that they thought might interfere with this, like beta blockers and SSRIs and other stuff. <laughs> History of ecathesia, restless leg syndrome were excluded as well. And this was a pretty simple, pretty well randomized trial. Basically, they had um, each patient that was enrolled, um, they were randomized by a computer, and they received a study kit. And the study kit had either had, a, had two vials in it, um, 
one was either given um, as a two-minute bolus of IV composine followed by a 15-minute infusion of saline or vice versa, depending on the randomization. And um, the study participants didn't receive any other meds for headache or nausea or vomiting during the first 30 minutes. If they got akathisia, they gave them 25 of Benadryl, IV, and then if they still had symptoms, they gave them another 25. They basically defined akathisia similar to, to the previous article. They used this um, Princeton Henry, Prince Henry Hospital rating scale of akathisia, but they modified it because the true scale involves like two minutes of observation and then like five minutes of video, and then you have to go back and do all this stuff. So they kind of modified it to make it more useful to the ED. And basically, if the patient approached them at any point in time and said, hey, I'm feeling something, then they counted that as... Um, they, then they assessed them for akathisia. They also assessed them at 30 and 60 minutes, and then they did a um, baseline assessment um, before this. And um, then they also checked <coughs> their pain and nausea to see if the medicines actually worked. So um, the results are, the bottom line is it didn't work. Um, their numbers were 29% of patients experienced akathisia compared to the 44% that the previous article had cited. Um, 51% of the patients reported akathisia spontaneously. And as kind of what Zane was saying earlier, two of the 29 patients that had akathisia um, actually left the ED within the first 30 minutes of the study. And I think this is one of the things that I learned is one of the unintended consequences of akathisia might be an elopement from the emergency department um, where you're thinking, hey, this patient's just anxious. I'm not giving them their narcotics and they want to they want to get out, but it, um, potentially, I've actually seen this myself and, and um, realized, I mean, I gave some Benadryl, I recognized, but I, it took me a few minutes. I didn't realize this was actually a common phenomenon, that patients would be agitated and want to leave the ED. Um, so basically the numbers were in the bolus group of bolus composite, 26% at echathesia, 32% in the infusion group, and the, um, the confidence interval on the change was um, the 95% confidence interval on the, on the change between those two or the interval between those two is minus 24% to 11.2%. So um, not significant at all. Um, they, um, the interesting thing is they followed up patients uh, 24 and 72 hours to see if they had um, akathisia. At 24 hours, 8.7% had akathisia in the bolus group and 6.4% in the infusion group. And... Um, just, um, just a, an interesting note of study persistent for participants who did not have echathesia while on the ED, nine had indications of echathesia follow-up. Um, so some of them may not have had symptoms while they're in the ED, but then had it follow-up. The only issue I have with that is they'd then been read the scale like three times. Mm-hmm. And so that by the last couple of times, they might be like, hey, I think I have that. Um, so I think this was a good study. I think it shows that it doesn't help to give um, composine slowly. The only issues I have with the study are, you know, the incidence of akathisia they report is 30%, which is less than the 44, 44% we read in the other article. And I still wonder how um, how the use of this type of scale affects the diagnosis. Because once the patient's heard the scale for the third time, I wonder if there's some hypervigilance or, you know, I don't know, that may elevate the results. But it is true that actually two of the patients in the trial ended up leaving the ED um, within 30 minutes, which is um, something that you don't want. Any comments? 
Yeah, I think we refer to something called the Hawthorne effect. If you know you're being watched for a certain set of symptoms, you're more likely to develop those symptoms. So if someone comes up to you and they ask you the Prince Henry scale and some of the questions on that, are you having trouble sitting still? Are you having trouble moving your legs? Are you having pins and needles? Um, you know, on and on, are you feeling uncomfortable? That one's kind of big. I think I know. <laughs> um, you know, so it's easy to get a pretty uh, high. But, you know, answer to any one of them positively doesn't really give you a positive anesthesia. You have to have an observed trouble sitting still and an observed feeling of anxiousness and then say yes to one of these other questions as well. So it's like a minor or major criteria. But again, the numbers are, again, not inconsequential, around 30%, and some of them don't have it initially, which to me is probably the more disturbing factor. You watch them, they go back home, and they have anesthesia at home. They have no idea what's going on, and their family members have no idea what's going on and why they act so anxious and stuff like that. Although I have seen a few people come back really delayed anesthesia, wondering if they were going out of their minds or something like that. Uh, so the interesting power phenomenon from this study was how well it worked. Um, the headache was reduced by 50% in about 75% of the patients, um, but not all. And nausea was reduced by 50% in about 90% of the patients. That's pretty good antiemetic, but yeah, not that great of an anti-headache kind of drug. And it's constantly touted as the first line of therapy by neurologists for migraines, which um, they didn't really define these headaches as migraines. And other studies have quoted success rates with compensating the 88 to 92% range. So it's sort of interesting. But I actually I, though I actually like this study. I think it was pretty well done. I, I, the academic in me um, has to comment on the title because, you know, the, the they did not prove that it doesn't affect incidence of akathisia in any way. They really just underpowered their study. In fact, they grossly underpowered their study and then failed to prove a difference. If I if I looked at the, at the you know if I if, if I looked at the data the results and said slowing down your infusion from two minutes to fifteen minutes decreases akathisia rates by twenty five percent, wouldn't everyone get excited? <clears throat> Which is exactly what they did. Thirty three down to twenty six percent. Not saying that that's statistically significant, it's just that their methodology was looking for a 50% reduction. I don't know about you, but a 25, 15% reduction in anesthesia would be worth it to me to slow down my infusion from 2 to 15 minutes. So um, it, I'm not, you know, to get the statistics where I want them, you'd need a thousand patients, and that's why they didn't do it. but. I think it's important to realize that they actually did grossly decrease, and in a, if it's if it's true, which we don't know, it's a clinically significant number, 25% less sacrificial rate. They actually did decrease it. So I'm just surprised that they concluded, that their conclusion and their title is sort of misleading. But that's just the academic in me. You know, the clinician in me likes to study. <laughs> Yeah. But as far as a sort of it, this will fix the problem, it, it didn't really fix the problem. Interesting, they did also allude to the, the original two authors, Vincent and Drotz, who did the first article we talked to, did submit an abstract of almost an identical study um, of 84 patients where akathisia developed again in 36.9%, so that same 30 40% of patients in the two minute infusion and, and versus the 15 minute infusion failed to reach a statistical difference between how many uh, developed akathisia between the two groups. And that was only an abstract form. Um, so now there's 
there's two sort of studies out there of like 180 patients um, um, looking at the same issue. So I guess the real issue I think that more people use is not so much the rate, but you know, what about just giving an anticholinergic drug with the theory that if you have more anticholinergic stimulation, then there will be less um, anti-dopaminergic stimulation, and somehow the balance of that um, um, is somehow changed. All right, so I'm going to talk about this article as well. So this is a um, double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized trial by Vincent Andrats, the authors um, mentioned in the first article, um, for reduced reduction of akathisia in IV prochlorperazine administration. And um, so they uh, basically what they did is similar um, similar design to the other study. They enrolled um, enrolled um, about 100 patients between 18 and 65 years. Uh, the exclusion criteria were essentially the same as the previous study. Um, they randomized. Um, in a double-blinded placebo-controlled fashion. And the pharmacy staff at their hospital um, prepared a one syringe with 10 milligrams of um, compazine and then either 50 milligrams of Benadryl or an equivalent volume of saline. And then the two syringes were identical. They put them in a bag and labeled A and B, and then they, they, um, they uh, randomized which patients got which bags. So they assessed echothecia similarly to the previous study. They assessed it once before the infusion. Um, they assessed it. Um, they actually, the only, the difference that I thought in their uh, assessment in this study is that they actually did the period of, they used the same um, um, score of the Prince Henry Hospital, but they modified it less. They did use a two-minute period of observation in the seated position, um, which seems to be a little bit different than the other study. But in general, they used the same type of scoring. Um, and then they assessed um, echothesia 60 minutes after the infusion of the drug, and in the same as the base, baseline method. And um, they treated all patients who had echothesia with rescue diphenhydramine after the one-hour assessment was completed. Um, so they based their numbers on their previous observational study with 44% of, at echothesia at one hour, um, and they were hoping that they would um, by a pilot study they did, they hoped they would reduce the incidence by 60%. And then they, that power, that estimated a power needed of 47 subjects in each group, so they enrolled 100 patients. Um, they, um, 19, they enrolled 19% of all of the patients that had IV composine in their ED during this time period. And um, basically the reason that those patients that weren't, weren't enrolled was because an investigator... Um, from the study was not available at the time. They had they noted echothesia in 36% in the um, control group and 14% in the um, diphenhydramine group, and a 61% relative reduction and an absolute reduction of 23%. And the 95% confidence interval for the odds ratio with um, adjuvant Benadryl was uh, 0.18 to 0.85. And they estimated a number needed to treat a five patients uh, to receive adjunctive Benadryl to reduce one episode of echothesia. And um, they also assessed sedation scores on these patients, theorizing that um, we're going to make them more sleepy, giving them another um, antihistamine, another sedative medicine. 
And indeed, they, they, the patients that got the Benadryl were more sedated than the patients that got the Compazine alone. And they um, talked about it for a little while and decided that it probably was a clinically, clinically significant increase in sedation. Now, whether or not that's a bad thing, um, I think, is up to the clinician to decide. Many people would argue that it might be a good thing. Um, so... Um, they, they noted in, in um, they quoted a, another prospective study, which was also interesting to me in their discussion, that noted um, 8% of patients receiving IV compazine had um, severe akathisia that compelled them to move disruptively about the ED, and um, all of them demanding immediately to leave. Um, that wasn't in this study, but just another study they quoted. So uh, I think this is something that could potentially change my practice if I decide to use be compazine in treating um, uh, migraine or nausea, that it would be useful to give them 50 milligrams of Benadryl at the same time and reduce the echothesia by 60% uh, down to, in the study, 14%. I think it's interesting that um, that's still a fairly high rate of echothesia in patients, and it's a side effect that's, you know, it's not probably life-threatening, but it could all, you know, it's certainly going to make your patient feel uncomfortable. It could put them at risk for elopement. So it'll make me think twice about when to use this medicine, when not to use this medicine in general. But it definitely, if I use it, I think I'll use, uh, use some Benadryl with it. Yeah, no, I think the Benadryl strategy obviously has shown, and, and they've done the study here too, that it reduces it. But you're right, it's still like one out of seven, one out of eight are going to still have achature. They, throughout these articles, they allude to incidences for patients eloped from the ER, patients who are going to have surgery suddenly back out of surgery. So I'd be real cautious in using it for someone who had nausea vomiting who may have a surgical abdomen, and then a surgeon's going to come down and tell them they need an appendectomy or a cystectomy, and now they're so achathesic they can't realistically consent to that procedure or outright uh, non-consent to something that they probably clearly need. Um, and, and then the qu- question still remains, what do you do with a person after they had 50 milligrams of Benadryl and they're somewhat sedated, they're just like aesthetic 14% of the time, do you have more Benadryl, do you put gentin? what if they still have nausea and vomiting, which they didn't address in this, what do you move to next? So, I mean, it's a, it's a drug, or I should say a group of drugs, because um, even though we picked on compazine, um, Benadryl to a small degree, and Thorazine to a large degree also produces a fair bit of, and other drugs we don't use very much anymore uh, for nausea, like Tigan, um, all are basically phenobiosines, all are dopamine antagonists, all are subjective to um, cause this phenomenon. Um, albeit many of them are relatively inexpensive because they're all, you know, the question is if we use something new and maybe better, um, I don't know if it's really better, because I don't think there's ever been any head-to-head comp, except in children, Comparisons of uh, Femigen and Zofran and these drugs uh, for nausea. But, uh, and the other thing they just mentioned in the discussion in passing was that the elderly may be at pretty high risk for receiving anticholinergic drugs. You have a you know, 50, 60 year old, 70 year old who's got nausea and vomiting, maybe giving this drug with Benadryl, maybe isn't the best course of action because of the anticholinergic effects, maybe higher or less well-tolerated than this population. So, um, again, compazine has not been historically one of my favorite drugs, but I think it's good to review the literature and what's out there. I think all of us have probably given a lot of compazine in our lifetimes. So it will be a 
five times is to realize that when the patient starts acting, pacing and agitated, maybe something that we did to them rather than something that was innate to the patient themselves. So we'll switch gears to a different form of side effects from the dopamine antagonists and talk a little bit um, about now neuroleptic malignant syndrome or malignant syndrome as it's sometimes related to with other entities. So to give us a good review on this is Sean. Hi. The article that I'm going to review is called uh, Atypical Neuroleptic Malignant Syndrome, Diagnostic Controversies and Considerations. This is a mini-review article that uh, compiles a number of the new studies, information learned from that, and and looks at diagnostic criteria for NMS and atypical NMS, and then goes on to uh, ask a few questions, many of which the article doesn't aim to resolve or answer at all, but just to bring up these issues. Uh, It's done by Picard et al. uh, from Cincinnati and Georgia, it looks like. And because the next few articles, I think, are going to be about NMS, I'm just going to briefly kind of um, review for a second. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome. um, It's a syndrome of relatively specific cluster, three to four areas of symptoms, severe muscular rigidity, elevated body temperature, and then kind of another category, which includes autonomic symptoms, as well as uh, mental status issues. Um, DSM-4 criteria uh, requires A, muscular rigidity, B, elevated body temperature, C, and then two of the following, uh, diaphoresis, dysphagia, tremor, incontinence, changes in level of uh, uh, consciousness, mutism, tachycardia, labile blood pressure, leukocytosis, and elevated CPK. All these must be present with uh, recent antipsychotic use, hence the neuroleptic malignant syndrome and cannot be due to another substance or medical condition. Now, uh, NMS carries an incidence of 0.01 to 0.02% in those people who use it, and uh, its mortality is 10%. And so that's, I think, one of the big issues that stems of what, much of what we're going to talk about. The pathophysiology compiled here in this article um, talks about uh, dopamine, especially D2 blockade, um, from which... When you get dopamine D2 blockade in the nigrostriatal pathway, it leads to extrapyramidal effects in the muscular rigidity, which in turn leads to increased temperature. And as well, you get dopamine blockade in the hypothalamus, which leads to impaired temperature regulation, uh, autonomic instability. As well, uh, with uh, many of the neuroleptics, the antipsychotics, um, they can induce acetylcholine release which can decrease available dopamine as well. So it kind of feeds back into that first category, into the dopamine blockade. Um, As well as they have noted in patients with NMS, some other uh, uh, serum levels, uh, increases in serum uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, a decrease in serum GABA. And then kind of an interesting one, uh, an increased ratio of ser- uh, serotonin to dopamine. So whether you have an increase in both, but just a relative difference in them or a decrease in both and a relative difference, such that the ratio of serotonin to dopamine increases. And with the, that pathophysiology in mind, um, you know, some of the risk factors for developing it are, uh, in terms of the drug, having a high-potency uh, drug that uh, blocks dopamine receptors uh, like the first-generation antipsychotics, or high dose of the drug, rapid titration of the drug are all risk factors, as well as kind of factors dealing with the milieu into which that drug is is placed. Uh, a patient who's already agitated, a patient who's already dehydrated, a patient who's in physical restraints, um, who has pre-existing central dopamine abnormalities and a prior history of NMS. 
So the key to um, reducing the high mortality rate that's among people with NMS is early diagnosis, um, and stopping the dopamine block, and reversing the dopamine block with some dopaminergic medications, bromocriptine, amantadine, gantrolane, and then supportive care. And the crucial, the crucial question here is um, early diagnosis. And because the atypical antipsychotics uh, have a little bit different um, receptor blockade um, spectrum than do the older ones, um, <clears throat> they actually have noted a difference in the kind of cluster of NMS symptoms that are noted with uh, second-generation antipsychotics versus first-generation. For example, um, in, in putative NMS cases where first-generation antipsychotics were used, 96% of those cases uh, had temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius accompanying them, whereas only 76% of the cases um, where second-generation antipsychotics were taken. Uh, had temperature greater than 38. So a slight difference, 76% to 96% difference. And this uh, study they quoted was a significant difference between those two groups. Uh, in addition to the temperature, uh, difference in rate of temperature increase in those cases, um, there's also a difference in the presence of muscular rigidity in terms of first generation versus second generation. And then especially within the second generation, there's a, a significant difference uh, between the percentage of NMS cases, uh, for instance, the percentage of NMS cases uh, with risperidone, um, they're only, or 95% of them had muscular rigidity, whereas only 79% of the cases uh, of NMS with clozapine had muscular rigidity. So there's a, a, a difference in the spectrum of symptoms that may be characteristic for different antipsychotics. So the question is then, you know, is this a different entity altogether? Is it really NMS? Is it a pre-NMS kind of symptom, or is it an incomplete NMS um, uh, manifestation? And with all these uh, questions in mind, at what point is it appropriate to treat patients if they're not having the full spectrum of NMS? And so um, this article had have looked at not just the DSM-4 criteria, which we spoke about earlier, but a number of different criteria that have been proposed uh, with the goal of um, creating a, a different criteria for NMS diagnosis. Some of those are actually more strict than the DSM-4 criteria, and some of them are less strict. Um, so, for instance, if you... Uh, one of the... The criteria was uh, proposed by Karoff et al. It was a significantly more restrictive um, diagnosis requiring muscular rigidity, uh, temperature, um, and then five autonomic symptoms compared to the DSM-4's two autonomic symptoms. The, another criteria, uh, Adonisio et al., um, was just a little bit more restrictive than the DSM-4 criteria. Uh, requiring muscular rigidity, temperature greater than 38, and then three minor symptoms compared to two in DSM-4. And then um, two criteria that are a little bit less restrictive are the Pope et al. criteria, which uh, mentions muscular rigidity, temperature, and then any evidence of autonomic instability. And then the Levinson criteria, which is actually the least restrictive of all of them, um, that is kind of a, it requires three major symptoms or two major plus four minor symptoms, uh, which means that you can have uh, NMS if you don't have muscular rigidity and temperature together. You can have only one or the other and still qualify. Um, 
So the, the article raised a number of questions about this. None of these different criteria have ever had any sensitivity or specificity um, uh, measurements on them. So determining at what point, um, or, or rather how, how sensitively or specifically they, they diagnose an MS, which would be uh, uh, pretty important to know if you're going to treat based on the criteria. <clears throat> Um, in, because this disease has a high mortality rate, uh, it might be more judicious to treat earlier, um, even if you, your symptoms don't necessarily meet uh, full criteria of the DSM-4 or some of the more restrictive ones. Um, another question raised was the assessment of whether treatment should be different in a typical NMS. There have been case reports of benzodiazepines acting better in uh, NMS that has hyperthermia predominant as opposed to um, having rigidity predominant where they've used dantrolene as kind of the first line uh, medication. And then uh, the third kind of issue or question they've raised is um, whether or not NMS symptoms can be placed on severity scales uh, and whether these severity scales can be used to uh, to place a threshold for treatment. So all these questions were raised by this article uh, and pointed to as areas for future research. Uh, no questions were necessarily answered by this, but it certainly reviewed some of the, uh, the conundrum of, of the different diagnostic criteria and the uh, fact there's no real line at which to treat right now based on these criteria. Yeah, thanks. Uh, really, really good review there. Um, you know, I think the important sort of new thing that came out with this is that um, NMS, kind of like SSRI, probably has a spectrum of disorders that maybe, if you call, you want to call it a pre-NMS or pre-serotonin syndrome, or we have pre-diabetes or other uh, disease entities. Um, there are cases that have mild set of symptoms. They may not have all of the classic parts of it. They may not be hyperthermic in some set. They may not be rigid in another set. They may not have rhabdomyolysis in another set. And, and this is where I think we get into disagreements. I know I've had cases where I've said, gee, I think this patient's got neuroleptic malignant syndrome and the internal medicine team thought one way and the psychiatrist who prescribed the drug thought, no, 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 let's keep a drug. And neurology was called in as the you know tiebreaker and all four parties had different visions of what really NMS is because everyone was referring to their own literature, each of which uses different scoring systems, and even within certain specialties, there are multiple scoring systems out there. I think taking that strict conceptual definitions away and understanding it as a spectrum disorder where you can have mild cases where maybe just withdrawing the drug is critical versus you know complete fulminant cases where it's life-threatening and the mortality rate's 10% and they're rigid and hypothermic and rhabdo and they need aggressive ICU supportive care, which I think has been historically the vision of what these patients are. So kind of like acathesia that may exist in mild forms. I think this disease also uh, exists in, in mild forms as well. Um, so I think that's probably the take-home message from that article. All right, moving along a little bit more on NMS, is is there an association between this, as people have brought up the different ratio between serotonin, dopamine, and these other neurotransmitters between Patients being on the SSRIs, the second generation or atypical antipsychotics, and 
development of NMS. So, Jamie, take it from here. Okay, so this was a review article written by Deborah Stevens in um, the Annals of Pharmacotherapy published in September 2008, and it's titled Association Between Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, Second Generation Antipsychotics, and Neuroleptic Malignant Syndrome. And it assessed um, cases of neuroleptic malignant syndrome associated with the use of those two um, classes of drugs. Um, it gave a review um, of DSM-4 criteria for NMS. Um, quite what Sean mentioned earlier, the presence of uh, both muscle rigidity and elevated temperature, and at least two of the following symptoms, um, including diaphoresis, dysphagia, tremor, incontinence. Changes in level of consciousness, mutism, tachycardia, elevated or labile blood pressure, leukocytosis, and elevated creatinine kinase. Um, they also mentioned risk factors for NMS, which included psychomotor agitation, dehydration, exhaustion, um, malnutrition, and higher doses of antipsychotics and antipsychotics used intramuscularly. Um, the male gender also were more prominent to um, getting NMS as well as um, older individuals, organic brain syndrome or other neurologic abnormalities and HIV infection. Um, multiple uses of antipsychotics also increase the chances of developing NMS. NMS um, presents with similar symptoms to other conditions, such as malignant hyperthermia, catatonia, and serotonin syndrome. Uh, NMS usually presents within 24 to 48 hours of the offending agent which is usually typically an antipsychotic, um, but it has shown to develop after days to weeks of administering an antipsychotic. Um, in contrast, serotonin syndrome typically occurs within minutes to hours and usually resolves a lot quicker than NMS as well. Um, the exact mechanism of NMS is not known, but there are a couple postulations as to what may be the cause of the development such as pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic mechanisms. Um, it is thought that an unbalance of central dopaminergic, cholinergic, adrenergic, and serotonergic neurotransmission contributes to its development. There's a prospective study in the article that was um, addressed, um, which measured the circulating dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine levels in platelet poor plasma from eight patients with acute NMS. And the levels of um, dopamine were found to be significantly lower and the epinephrine levels significantly higher in um, the acute NMS phase versus the recovered phase. <clears throat> Serotonin concentrations, however, were not found to be statistically um, any differences between that, but the serotonin to dopamine ratio was found to be significantly higher in the acute phase of NMS. Um, versus the recovered phase. And such findings lead to the theory that NMS development is associated with the direct or indirect um, blockade of dopamine um, in the basal ganglia and hypothalamus. Um, SSRIs and second-generation antipsychotics can both do this. Um, SSRIs are thought to impact the development of NMS by its increase in serotonin levels, which therefore inhibit the release of dopamine. And one of the cases they talked about um, in the review um, that included an administration of an SSRI without an antipsychotic in which the patient developed NMS um, 
was a 74-year-old male who had elevated creatinine kinase and severe extrapyramidal symptoms um, 10 days after the initiation of paroxetine and alprazolam. The creatinine kinase normalized after seven days of treatment with bromocryptine and diazepam. And serotonin syndrome was ruled out in this case due to the lack of hyperreflexia and myoclonus, so it was thought to be NMS. Um, other drugs that could block D2 receptors and cause NMS are antiemetics. Um, Parkinson's drugs raise dopamine levels, so when these drugs are suddenly withdrawn in these patients, it can also lead to NMS. Um, Second-generation antipsychotics um, are found to have weaker dopamine blockade, so NMS is less prevalent than the first generation. Several of the NMS cases reviewed here um, strongly suggest that interactions through the P450 systems um, also lead to the development of NMS by increasing antipsychotic concentrations um, as a result of the inhibition of its metabolism by an SSRI. Um, one of the one of the cases here mentioned included a patient who received monotherapies of quetiapine and fluvoxamine without problems in the past at separate occasions, and then developed NMS after 10 days following the start of fluvoxamine to a current regimen of quetiapine. Um, fluvoxamine is an inhibitor of CYP3A4, and quetiapine is a substrate for that enzyme, and therefore led to an elevated quetiapine concentration. Can I get a console? And unbalanced serotonin and dopamine levels. Uh, many of the antipsychotics are substrates for other enzymes, such as CYP2D6, which may also suggest that poor metabolizers for that enzyme may be at an increased risk for NMS. Um, there's a chart in the article on a couple pages um, that summarizes some cases reviewed, um, about 29 cases, which involve the use of a second-generation antipsychotic and an SSRI or other antidepressant with serotonergic activity. Um, for the most part, um, all these cases, uh, for the most part, um, the patients recovered, but there were a couple cases that um, the patient did not survive and resulted in a fatal outcome. Uh, the, of the 29 cases reviewed, the most common antipsychotics involved in NMS were risperidone, Clozapine, quetiapine, ziprazidone, and aripiprazole in the order from most frequent to the least. And the most common SSRIs involved was um, paroxetine, was the most um, involved, and followed by fluoxetine, then fluvoxamine, sertraline, escitalopram, and citalopram. And there were also six cases that involved venlafaxine, which is an SNRI, um, with similar mechanisms. It is thought that the paroxetine and fluoxetine may have been more frequently associated with NMS due to their increased potential for P450 um, interactions as potent 2D6 inhibitors. Um, there is also recommended treatments for NMS um, mentioned in the article, of course, discontinuing the, um, discontinuing the offending agent and performing supportive measures. Um, Dantrolene and bromocryptine were also um, possible um, treatments. And if everything else fails, electroconvulsive therapy was an option. 
Yeah, great. Good, good, good review there. So this kind of layers on yet another uh, level to NMS, where I think traditionally the uh, teaching used to be, um, you know, it was a problem with uh, dopamine and anticholinergic alone, and now to suggest that perhaps serotonin um, has something to do with the mix and maybe even norepinephrine um, as far as levels that were measured. And this is a combination of medications we're seeing increasingly more and more when we talk about overdoses every morning, SSRI plus second generation antipsychotics. You know, when they're in the hospital for two or three days and we hear that they're running a fever or they can't get off the vent, you start wondering, um, you know, is it just from what we usually expect from these agents or is there something else going on? Is there an underlying as we mentioned earlier, some spectrum disorder of uh, early neuroleptic malignant syndrome being unmasked by the combination of these two meds. Are they febrile because of that? Are they stiff because of that? And they're not getting off the vent because of that. So certainly an area for much, much more um, research in the future. But I think this recent article, really from last month, um, whets our appetites to explore a little bit more uh, neurotransmitter physiology in regard to this syndrome. Switch gears just a little bit, but we're remaining within uh, NMS. I'm going to talk about first a couple of case reports and an article that follows up on it. Um, basically, there is a, not a neuroleptic malignant syndrome, because it's not due to neuroleptics, but a malignant syndrome that occurs in Parkinson patients, um, which meets pretty much the same criteria we've talked about before and has a lot of the same risk factors, but usually due to anti-Parkinson drug withdrawal or infections. So the first two cases, just briefly, was a 68-year-old man with 10 years of rigidity uh, from Parkinson's disease. He was on levodopa and um, seligiline and benzerazid, which I don't think is available in this country, stopped his medicine and tried to use alternative therapeutic measures and developed increased salivation, diaphoresis, uh, decreased turgor, became stuporous, became febrile. Um, he had an EEG, MRI, all these were normal, um, had plasma phoresis for reasons that were unclear, and eventually got started on bromocryptine and levodopa and um, sort of slowly resolved his fever but remained in a uh, severe uh, impaired state for many months after that. Uh, the second case was a 72-year-old with eight years of tremor, um, dominant Parkinson's disease. He was also on levodopa and pergolide. Stopped it um, and was substituted with propranolol uh, by his doctor. Uh, 48 hours later, he became rigid, unable to walk, somnolent, febrile the 38.5. He also got, as most of these patients end up getting a big workup, CSF analysis was normal. Uh, he got IV fluids, he got bromocryptine and levodopa, and he eventually recovered over the next few days. Um, and they mentioned there's a latency period between stopping levodopa and the appearance of this malignant syndrome, and it may have to do with D2 receptor changes in the dopaminergic system. So there is a paper that follows these two case reports, well, not from the same journal, but sort of goes into a little bit more detail on this phenomenon, um, called withdrawal of levodopa and other risk factors for malignant syndrome and Parkinson's disease. This was actually a pretty big study. It was done out of... Uh, Japan uh, from uh, Matsumoto and a couple of other institutes. Um, they define uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome as fear, rigidity, altered level of consciousness, and autonomic dysfunction, as we've heard. 
and it can be certainly associated with antipsychotic drugs, but they also talk about it occurring in idiopathic uh, Parkinson's disease and other Parkinson-like diseases like supranuclear uh, palsy and all the, the old pontocerebellar atrophy, which I believe is what Michael Fox has, a variant of Parkinson's disease. And they looked uh, retrospectively at 666 patients, a pretty good number of patients, going back over several years at Parkinson's disease according to the NMS uh, criteria of Levinson, which has been previously mentioned, it included fever, rigidity, and elevated CK levels, and then a minor ma- other manifestations such as tachycardia, uh, blood pressure changes, increased respiratory rate, altered level of consciousness, diaphoresis, all those things that go along with autonomic dysfunction and or leukocytosis. And, and they also looked at change in Parkinson's symptoms, CK, and fever and level of consciousness. They excluded people who had known myopathies, patients who had intramuscular injections, whose CKs might have gone up for that, MIs, whose CKs might have gone up for that, heat stroke, malignant hyperthermia, and lethal catatonia, which we haven't really addressed, but it's also a, a, a psychiatric disorder rather than a chemical disorder. Um, and they ended up look finding amongst all those patients, despite having a large number of patients with Parkinson's disease, 14 patients who um, developed this withdrawal syndrome, this malignant syndrome of withdrawal of Parkinson meds, or 2% of the whole total of patients with idiopathic Parkinson. Um, Parkinson's disease ranged anywhere from one year to 26 years. The maximum body temperature was not excessively high. It was 36 to 39, which I think is in big contra- uh, distinction to what we talk about the other malignant uh, hypothermic disease, which is malignant hyperthermia, with tension which is usually go about 40 degrees. And again, it's a genetic disorder. Um, stupor was present in two, somnolence in seven, and some change of alertness in, uh, in seven other episodes. Um, the anti-Parkinson medication was resumed in most of these patients after withdrawal, and all the patients received symptomatic and supportive care, uh, which included antipyretics, and one patient got dantrolene, and whether or not that works for this or not is always up to some lengthy discussion and argument. Um, none of the patients had any fatality, which is different than what we've seen with the neuroleptic malignant syndrome, per se. They identified some of the same risk factors we talked about before. Obviously, the big one was withdrawal of Parkinson meds, dehydration in three, cerebral hemorrhage in one, which probably led to some other issues, uh, concussion in another, vertebral compression in another. So some sort of trauma might change um, the risk of this um, and the anti-Parkinson med was withdrawn before the development in about half of the episodes due to difficulty taking medications or the physician's indications in most of these. Um, infection associated with fever was observed before the maximal CK elevation, or at least that's what the charts might say. I think people always attribute fever to infection. And they present a nice little graphic timeline uh, for all 14 of these patients, of which... Case number 13 had three episodes um, where they attributed it to either some change and then some sort of withdrawal or infection, sort of the definition when they decided they had worsening of Parkinson's symptoms and then CK elevation, which seemed to occur late in the course. And, you know, the same issues come up. Patients were dehydrated uh, before they detected CK elevations. Um, 
Sodium was elevated in a few, which again went along with the dehydration and suggests there was more hyperosmotic dehydration. Um, and so the bottom line, I think, is that yet another form of hyperthermic syndrome exists, similar to neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which uh, works via the dopaminergic system. The withdrawal of a dopamine agonist creates a relative dopamine antagonist state, which essentially creates a picture identical to neuroleptic malignant syndrome, but they define it as malignant syndrome without the word neuroleptic in front of it to uh, show that it is indeed sort of a, a, a different inciting event, but many of the risk factors are, are essentially almost identical um, uh, to those that cause neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So to finish out our list of things that can happen with dopamine antagonists, we have Pat, our fellow, to talk about tardive syndromes, not just tardive dyskinesia. Tell you all the variants that exist. All right, I'm Patrick West. I'm going to uh, talk about a uh, article from 2003 from the Neurologist uh, called "Classifications and Treatment of Tardive Syndromes" uh, by Fernandez and Friedman out of Brown. And basically, this is kind of a, a discussion article about uh, their kind of classifications of tardive syndromes and movement, this involuntary movement disorders that are related to dopamine receptor blocking agents, how they classify them. And I think the whole point of this is that, that kind of their review and their is that is that people treat these in very different ways and they kind of at the end of this article I kind of suggest a little bit of an algorithm and a way for people to treat these uh, appropriately. I think that's kind of the point of this whole article. So um, kind of the start of this, basically, they define uh, the tardive syndromes as a group of delayed onset abnormal involuntary movement disorders that are induced by dopamine receptor blocking agents. Um, they said basically that tardive dyskinesia has been used for a long time and to refer to all the tardive syndromes, but that tardive dyskinesia in and of itself really refers just to the uh, oral buccal lingual areas. And then there are a couple other things, dystonia and cathesia that they kind of want to separate out from those. Um, so kind of, they, they kind of discussed what we've talked about before, that all of these really result from chronic exposure to a dopamine receptor blocking agents. Um, and they have really not, so it's all the blocking agents, but haven't really been reported as much with dopamine depleters or with atypical antipsychotics. They are, however, reported with something, things like uh, metoclopamide and prochlorperazine uh, that also uh, are dopamine receptor blocking agents. Um, and basically, then they kind of go on to say that several other drugs have caused similar symptoms that have nothing to do with dopamine, as far as we know, like flecainide, and they're really not sure exactly what the mechanism is uh, for the whole thing. So then they kind of go on to their classification. So the first classification they wanted to talk about was tardive dyskinesia, uh, which was first described about in 1950s, about five years after chlorpromazine became widely available. Um, they felt like the incidence increased with oral ex with, uh, with chronic exposure, and it typically presents with rapid, repetitive, stereotypic movements involving oral, buccal, and lingual areas. Uh, and kind of rhythmical, other things you can get, rhythmical chorea, oral, buccal, lingual um, with it. Uh, really, so this is kind of mostly lip-smacking, puckering, chewing movements, things kind of in the in the oral area. 
Um, they felt like these were all very stereotyped, which made it uh, distinguishable from Huntington's disease, where movements are completely random and unpredictable. Uh, they also felt like uh, in part of dyskinesia, the, in, the movements can actually be suppressed by voluntary actions, or when, when people actually try to suppress them, they actually can be suppressed, as opposed to Huntington's disease, which cannot do that. Um, so the full uh, part of dyskinesia syndrome uh, can take days to weeks to develop, um, and but often stabilizes after that, and after that time of uh, development, and then it's more likely to emerge when uh, first time or worsen when you actually take the dopamine uh, blocker away. Uh, and then they've noted, other studies have noted that actually restarting the dopamine, so if you give it, they get tardive dyskinesia, you take it away, it gets worse, and then if you give, it, give the uh, neuroleptic back, the symptoms get better. Uh, which is kind of, I think that's kind of one of their points, is that that's a very well-known fact, and they think it may not be the best treatment for these people. Uh, so prevalence of tardive dyskinesia, they say that basically it, it's more prevalent in older than in younger people, with 5% in the younger group and uh, 20, or 12% in the older group. And uh, they said, and then maybe even up to 20% of people treated with standard neuroleptic drugs end up with tardive dyskinesia. Um, and age seems to be the most consistent risk factor, although there are lots of other risk factors for it. Uh, and basically the natural history, uh, nobody knows. It sounds like uh, some some studies have shown that it gets better, some studies have shown it gets the same, and some say that it gets worse. So nobody really knows. So uh, that that's tardive dyskinesia. Next, they want to uh, distinguish that from tardive dystonia, um, which is basically persistent uh, uh, dystonic movements that are uh, sound like they're very difficult to distinguish from idiopathic torsion dystonia, um, which essentially is kind of the typical dystonia that we think of, I believe. Um, so apparently with tardive dystonia, when, you, it, when it involves the neck, you get retrocolic. Uh, when it involves the trunk, you get the trunk arching backwards, um, as opposed to lateral, laterally and twisting, which you get with idiopathic dystonia. Uh, with the, when it involves limbs, you get internal rotation of the arms, extension of the elbows, and flexion of the wrists. Uh, and um, again, you get reduction in dystonic uh, movements when you uh, have voluntary movements like walking, whereas that can actually make things worse with idiopathic dystonia. Um, others. So um, in one series, 21% of patients uh, with tardive dystonia, had been exposed to neuroleptic for one year or less. So that made the authors conclude that basically there was no uh, minimum safe period, that, uh, that no period that could be considered safe to put someone on a neuroleptic where, where they didn't have a chance of developing this. Um, so prevalence seems to be about uh, 2% overall, and it seems to be more common in uh, younger patients than males. Okay, so tardive akathisia. Uh, we've already talked about akathisia a little bit today, and it's just a feeling of inner restlessness and jitteriness uh, that is off, 
uh, objectively manifested by semi-purposeful movements, and uh, most commonly just not being able to keep your legs still. Um, there's, it sounds like there's really no consensus diagnostic criteria, although we heard about a whole bunch of different uh, tests earlier. Um, so they said uh, mean age of onset is about 58 years, and average uh, dopamine receptor blocking agent exposure is about four and a half years at onset. Um, and it's been reported in up to 20 to 40% of patients on these medications. So, uh, other tardive syndromes. Um, I'll just kind of run through these really quickly. You, you can get uh, tics and tardive tourettism from it. Uh, postural myoclonus. You can get a type of tremor from it. It sounds like it's very similar to... Uh, uh, it, mm, Postural and kinetic, but otherwise very similar to other Parkinsonism. And then there's also a withdrawal syndrome where you can uh, get uh, chorea and random uh, movements of the limbs, neck, and trunk. Um, and that's when, when the again, when the dopamine receptor blocking agent is actually taken away, and you can make the uh, withdrawal syndrome go away by restarting it again. Easy enough. Okay. Um, so then they go through the differential. They talk primarily about the. They said they said that the diagnosis of this is very easy, which I kind of doubt, but that's all right. Uh, they said that like uh, the classic tardive dyskinesia that we're all at least used to see when the older agents are the classic. Uh, they can't stop moving and puckering their lips and moving their arms. Uh, those are pretty classic. In the old. I've seen those, especially the brown roller grocery. I've seen it, seen it for many years. Maybe harder to pick it up from other disorders. Yeah, and I think the the point that, that some of the others are very difficult to distinguish from normal akathisia or normal dyskinesia. Uh, they said that you know in the past it's kind of been hard to tell the difference between that and Huntington's disease, but now there's actually a, a genetic test for Huntington's disease, so that uh, is kind of taken out of the picture and make, makes it a little bit easier. Um. So treatment. Uh, really, they said prevention is the only way to really keep people from having any of these part of uh, syndromes. Uh, really, and basically, they they stress over and over again that really you should should don't use neuroleptics if you don't have to. Try try other drugs first, um, and then symptomatic treatment for people that already have uh, some type of tardive disorder. Uh, it, they're Basically, they said that there's a, there was a recent review article, and I think this is the point of their whole article, that recommended using benzodiazepines, vitamin E, as the first line, and then basically switching from a neuroleptic to an atypical antipsychotic. And basically, they don't necessarily think that that's the best uh, way to go. Um, so they kind of discuss the treatment options at this point. So the, the main one that they concentrate on here is clozapine, because I think that really has the most uh, uh, data behind it. And it's a, because it's an uh, unconventional atypical antipsychotic, and it's a relatively weak blocker of the D2 receptor. And uh, it, it also has several clinical trials, it sounds like, that um, show it does have therapeutic potential in treating tardive dyskinesia that already exists. Um, and then they run through several several reports of uh, sounds like we've got a table down just below that on the number of patients that they they looked at and, and you know there's some that are there's some that are actually uh, 
pretty reasonable size, 30, 30, 40, and then there's one that's 126. And all of them seem to have somewhere between uh, 20 to 40 and up to 100% of the subjects were improved when they were with, uh, and their symptoms were improved when they were put on uh, closing. Okay. So other uh, atypical antipsychotics that um, risperidone, they felt like it uh, had, has been linked to causing tardive dyskinesia in patients that have never been exposed to other antipsychotics, um, though the incidence seems to be a lot lower, less than 1%, um, and it seems to be more common in the elderly population um, and with a risk of 2.35% per year. Um, so otherwise, I'll, I'll let, we're kind of moving into things where there's less data at this point, olanzapine. Um, so there are reports of, several reports of it improving tardive dyskinesia. A large double-blinded trial demonstrated lower incidence of olanzapine causing tardive dyskinesia than other, uh, neuroleptics. And, uh, there really, there are only a few accounts of olanzapine causing tardive dyskinesia, um, and, but only one of those when olanzapine was the sole antipsychotic. Did a meta-analysis that uh, looked at 129 patients in following for 30 weeks, and basically their uh, movement scores improved over that time. So they think that that actually probably does help somewhat. Otherwise, uh, quetiapine. Um, they feel like this one actually has a lot of potential, but again, it's, it's a newer drug, so it's, it seems to have a closest pharmacology to clozapine uh, without the risk of acranulocytosis. So I think that there's, it, there's don't seem to be any uh, reports of tardive dyskinesia and the, um, feel like the risk of it is low in causing tardive dyskinesia. And so they feel like it actually may have the same effects as the clozapine, but no studies have been done. All right. Um, so other other possibilities, you can do presynaptic dopamine depleters like reserpine, uh, which basically is for the most part reserved for it, uh, severe or moderate tardive dyskinesia, tardive dyskinesia and uh, tardive disorders just because of the significant amount of side effect that people uh, get with it. Uh, there is actually in a Study on double blind placebo controlled study, it improved uh, uh, tardive disorders by about 50%. Um, and uh, and 50% had a 50% improvement on it. But it sounds like there are significant uh, problems with getting depression on the uh, drug. Depression, hypotension, arrhythmia, sedation are kind of the big thing, big problems with it. And said it's just really hard to use a increasingly depressive drug on people who already have depression and schizoaffective uh, disorder. So it kind of makes it more difficult to use. Talk about tetrabenazine, which apparently is not available in the United States, but actually caused reduction of tardive dyskinesia of about 70% <coughs> of patients that were put on that in one trial. So possible uh, treatment in the future. And then uh, uh, clonopin, a basically did a, sing, a one double-blind study that showed uh, clonazepam and uh, phenobarb uh, significantly reduced uh, tardive disorders, um, and then, but then two other show, uh, studies really showed no benefit at all of clonopin uh, and uh, this, this, uh, alpraxolam. Uh, 
other adjunctive uh, therapies. Actually, they have uh, vitamin E here. Uh, a double-blind uh, clinical trial seems to have, again, produced a conflicting result um, in from mild to moderate tardive dyskinesia improvement, and uh, they felt there was no clinically relevant improvement in using vitamin E over placebo um, in one study, and then patients apparently, so there was no improvement in symptoms with vitamin E, but some patients actually had deterioration of their symptoms if they weren't put on vitamin E. So the standard dose, they, then they give a, it, they say it may not be unreasonable, just go ahead and use it. It's pretty benign medication uh, for it and kind of give a standard dosage. Uh, other than that, anticholinergic drugs for uh, tardive dystonias, uh, trihexafenadil um, is one that seems like it's been used, but they, again, warn against uh, warn against kind of the sedation and other side effects that you can get with the anticholinergic drugs and encourage you to use as little as possible. Um, other than that, they go through about a three or four paragraph list of other drugs that have been tried and might have potential, but basically uh, more work needs to be done on all of these. So kind of their, their conclusion here is uh, that there are kind of different types. Tardive, they went through through all the uh, Tardive syndromes, and really they kind of have an algorithm at the end where they want to suppress mild uh, Tardive uh, dyskinesias. They want uh, low-dose benzodiazepines or vitamin E, and then moderate to severe dopamine depleters such as uh, tetrabenazine or serpine. And then really as a last resort, moving to restarting the uh, neuroleptic that caused the whole thing. And that's about it. Yeah, no, thankfully we don't see much of this anymore. It used to be irrevocably staple in emergency medicine and really living in any big city. We walked around downtown where there's a lot of homeless with people walking down the street with tardive dyskinesias uh, from long-term use of mostly depot, but also oral agents that were used for decades to treat these folks. And I think the prevailing thought was once they got it, it was there and it wasn't going to go away. So it's nice to know that at least there's some trials out there. A couple of different agents uh, that may have some impact on them. But I think the good news is that most of the newer atypical, which now are the typically prescribed uh, antipsychotic agents, have a lower incidence of these and perhaps even one of them, although not clearly described much because of its side effects of marrow suppression, clozapine may actually help improve it in a few studies. So again, the, the one side effect we don't see that much in, in emergency medicine, but clearly it's out there and it's part of the long, long spectrum of uh, side effects of this whole group of agents from dystonia to akathisia to neuroleptic malignant syndrome through tardive dyskinesia uh, are things we should all be aware of and all should uh, know about these agents. Any other uh, thoughts? Uh, all right, I think we'll wrap it up, and we'll see you all uh, next month uh, for our journal club. Thanks.